Hey, Sugar fans, we are going to be taking some time off to work on new episodes, and we'll be back this summer with a brand new season of Dear Sugar Radio. That's right. We'll be releasing episodes in seasons going forward, and we have some more exciting developments on the horizon that we can't quite tell you about yet, but we will soon. And now, listen, there's something you can do in the meantime for us, though, because you listeners are the reason we love making this show more than anything, and we want you to actually be a part of planning what shows we do moving ahead. So if you have an idea for an episode, write to us at dearsugarradio at gmail.com and put show idea in the subject line. We're going to be listening back during this little break to some of our favorite episodes of Dear Sugar Radio. Enjoy and stay tuned. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Sugar, how do I parent teenage children through the scary minefield of risky behaviors of sex, drugs, and alcohol when I myself was a terrible teenager and young adult who did many things that were dangerous, illegal, and destructive? One of my sons knows of my previous behavior only because he found my high school yearbook, which is full of notes from friends which tell many things about my past I wish he never knew. I'm ashamed and embarrassed of the things I did. He clearly knows I abused alcohol, drugs, skipped school, etc. when I was his age. How do I talk to him about my past? How do I respond to him saying, You did all that, Mom, and you turned out fine? I'm still making peace with my past. Thank you so much, Sugar. Signed, Former Hellraiser. Former Hellraiser, I'm so glad that you have written us because this is something we thought about a lot as people who've written about our lives. And, you know, it's not in our yearbooks. It's in our books books. That's right. Uh, And, you know, this is this real tricky, intractable problem. Do as I say, not as I do, right? For parents, at some point, our kids will know about and then know more deeply about the foibles and screw-ups of our childhood and our young adulthood and our mid-adulthood. And it gets even more complicated and fraught when it's teenagers who are entering that period where they want to push back against whatever authority is there to be pushed back against, especially parental. Mm-hmm. You know, former Hellraiser, I, I really read your letter with interest because I am constantly being asked this question as the author right. of a book called Wild. You know, I write about drug use. I write about promiscuity. In, my, in Tiny Beautiful Things, in my Dear Sugar columns that are published in Tiny Beautiful Things, I talk very openly about all of my life. And some of that is, you know, complicated stuff that I certainly don't talk to my kids about right now. My kids are 9 and 10, so it's a little early to talk to them about some of that stuff. But really, I feel very differently about this than I sense you do in your letter. I don't think that it's destructive for our kids to know us. And by know us, I mean to know 
who we really are, what our lives contained, what are the, some of the things we did. I think that question uh, that your son asked you when he, when he said you did all of that, Mom, and you turned out fine, I think that's a great opening to a powerful Absolutely. and important conversation yep. that the two of you can have. Because of the fact of the matter is you did do all that stuff. And you learn from those things, and some of those things you probably wish you didn't do, but they were great lessons for you. Some of those things, perhaps because of your experience, you can really openly help your children navigate some of those questions. I mean, why did you uh, use drugs and alcohol, and what was the outcome? Right. What did you learn from those experiences? I think sometimes we forget, especially when our kids are teenagers and they're really, uh, their attitude is one of rejection. I think sometimes that, that we think they're not listening to us, but they are. They're I think that listening. statement, you know, you did all that and you turned out fine. I really think that what your, your child is asking you to tell him is how, why. Who are you? What did you learn? What did you know? Right. Even if he can't make eye contact while you're telling him those stories, he's listening. When I was about 14 or 15, really coming into my own sexuality, I remember distinctly saying to my mom, when did you lose your virginity? How old were you? And she hesitated and blushed and stammered, and I could tell she wasn't sure if she should tell me the truth. And then she decided to. Hmm. And she told me the story. She told me why she became sexually active when she did. She was 17. She was in high school. It was her first love. She told me um, what she made of that relationship now. You know, she reflected upon whether that was a good idea or not to have sex at that age with that man, mm -hmm. with that young boy. Um, and I never forgot it. It informed me. It helped me. I didn't, you know, I didn't make necessarily the very best decisions about myself sexually as a teenager. But I will say my mother's story was was a guiding light to me. And, and I do think, former Hellraiser, that your stories not only can be guiding lights to your teenagers, but they will be. And I think that the, the, the best way for them to be is to not have them be secrets that you've buried in your life. Right. But rather have them be things that you say, here's what a whole person looks like. I mean, isn't that the best thing we can give our children? To show them all of our complexity, all of our humanity. They already know it anyway. They yeah. know. Right. Like our kids know, you know, they, they know us at our best and they know us at our worst. They know us when we're telling the truth. And they know us when we're lying. Mm -hmm. They know when we're fooling ourselves and when we're fooling them. And so it doesn't, you know, I, I, would, I would imagine that in some maybe even, you know, sort of subconscious way, the reason that your son went and dug up that yearbook and read all that stuff is he, is he knew what he was going to find there. He knew that you had been keeping secrets from him about your life. Oh, and he wanted those secrets. I mean, yeah. one of the great mysteries, the sort of the great, in the great vault of our childhood, we're trying to, you know, find the combination that will open all that big vault of secrets that is who were our parents before they were these people who just told us what to do and were mom and dad who were they when they were our age and struggling right. with the terrors and uncertainties and doubts and desires and confusions of this time and, and you know what's crucial is to keep that line of communication open mm -hmm. at, at all times and and part of it is telling stories if asked and a lot of it is just listening and not making judgments right not me and that that i think is the thing that is the hardest because your natural inclination is to start holding forth and saying well i did this and the moral is you shouldn't you do don't that do it. teenagers they're going to do some stuff 
Yeah. And the, the, the problem isn't that they do a, a bad thing or make a bad decision, but that they learn that what they do with that is hide it away. Mm-hmm. And if we hide it away, we're actually directly teaching them. So one of the, one of the things that we have the luxury, we've written books about our past, okay? We considered these documents. We wrote them some years after the experience. Our former Hellraiser has that yearbook, okay? So her son read the stuff that teenagers wrote, you know? So part of what she can do to sort of write that boat, I mean, I certainly don't know that I'd want my kids to read my yearbook either, but, you know, she can now narrate those years through the perspective she's gained. Right. So we're going to call somebody who has done that same kind of work, the amazing, beautiful, brilliant writer, Mary Carr. So excited. Who is the author of three memoirs, The Liars Club, Mm -hmm. Cherry, and Lit. I love them all. Lit is, I think, my favorite among them, but it's hard to choose. And all of them write about these issues of, you know, the mistakes we made, essentially, the, the, the wild days of her youth, her 20s and 30s, and she herself has raised a son. So she made it all the way through that fire. Not only her own fire, but, the, 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 you know, she's, she's raised a son as well. Hey, Mary, how are you? Hello, gorgeous. This is, this is a warm-up for a talk show, which is going to be called Girls Gone Miles. Ah! <laughs> You're going to be our, our sex and drugs and rock and roll correspondent. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Since I've been sober 25 years out, I mean, there, there, you know, I, I got sober before, like, crack cocaine and wine coolers. I mean, it's amazing what I miss. Well, what's so funny about that? And let's talk about that for a second, because, you know, here you and I are like this sort of poster kids for like slutty, druggy, <laughs> drinky. Right, exactly. And I'm like, yeah. well, actually, yeah, we've we're been like, like the bad mom through the after school special. Exactly. Yeah. And yet, meanwhile, we've been actually these incredibly hardworking, upright, fine young citizens. Humble. And humble, too. Right. Yeah, right. Don't Plus adorable. <laughs> right. Plus adorable. But, um, but do you know what I'm saying? It's, it, it does become this funny thing where you, you write a book about your wilder days, and you've written more than one. I do, See, I, everybody assumes that I'm still a, a slutty drug user. Is, I know. I mean, th- no, I think you, they look at you, and they know that you're, you're now Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> But they look at me and they think I'm still uh, uh, just a derelict uh, slattern. What about slattern? I love it. I love that you use the word slattern. She's a poet. She's not used enough. She's not like a lowly prose writer. She's a poet. She knows how to use yeah, a word. Poets she wouldn't have say, to take the subway. That's right. So <laughs> began my life as a slut. She would say, so began my life as a slattern. That's right. right. Exactly. Let's back up here. So as you know, we have this letter from... Uh, this former Hellraiser who's mortified that her teenage son has, you know, learned about her past that involves sex and drugs and skipping school and so forth. And uh, before we called you, Steve and I discussed this a bit. We both also have, like most people, have done mm-hmm. things in our in our youth that we don't want our kids necessarily to do. Um, right. But we called you because you're very famously having written about your kind of wilder young days and the struggles right. you went through, even as a young mother. You know, you were, didn't become sober until your son was how old? Three, three and a half. Three yeah. and a half. So we would love to hear your story and um, to, to get uh, some of your thoughts on, on how your past has come to bear on your life as a mother and 
and how you parented um, your son through those years when he was asking some of those I questions. Basically, I put a stake in the yard and a and a damned ankle bracelet on him and a tracking device, <laughs> and, and uh, he circled way. that pole until he got to college. That's right. Well, you were raised in Texas. That's how they do it down there, right? That's what I wish I could have done, right? Correct. So, Mary, tell us about a little bit about the, the, the concise story of your your past and, and your trajectory as a mother. Oh, my goodness. Well, I discovered the wonderful world of drugs and alcohol when I was about 15, and I was like a relief-seeking missile. You know, I, I wanted <laughs> relief. And, um, I mean, when I was 17, I left home, and I lived in a car in Laguna Beach, California, and then moved into a house with a bunch of drug dealers. So, I, you know, that's what my life was like. And Deb knows Uncle Dooney, who used to sell drugs. And, and so... Um, and Deb is your son. That Deb is my young Deb is my son. Yes, now he's twenty eight. Wow. So, yeah, him's all grown up. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, long before he was a teenager, I took him to the graveyard. <laughs> you know, I said, "Remember Gary? I talked about my peers where Gary's buried, and Dooney and I walked around the graveyard and talked about all the people we drank and did drugs with." Really? Um, Were you doing that to protect him from? To, to, I guess, educate him on the risks of such behavior, or what were your intentions? Well, I mean, I wasn't going to lie to him right. about what I had done. And in my family, you know, my father drank himself off a bar stool and was bedridden for five years with a stroke, you know, and my mother almost died, and, and I almost died. And I checked into a mental institution when he was, I guess, three and a half years old, uh, when I was newly sober. And I suffered a a very serious depression, and I was suicidal. And so Hmm. uh, I guess I just, I was scared. I was scared for him. And we have, he has on both alcoholism on both sides of his family. So, Mm -hmm. you know. How do you think that influenced him as a teenager during those years when he was testing all the limits we do? Um, do you think that, that, you know, that he was aware of the life you'd had? Do you think that that made him wilder and more of a hellraiser? Or do you think that it helped temper some of that urge within himself? I think it helped temper it. It's funny. You know, well, you know, Corin Zalkus, who wrote that memoir, Smash, was a student of mine, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, she babysat Deb. And she tells a story about picking him up from from school after lacrosse practice or something when he was maybe 14. And one of her friends looked at him, and he was 60 tall and looked like a J. Crew model, um, and said, do you party? <laughs> one of her little drunk sorority friends said, do you party to that? <laughs> what did he and, say? And he said, uh, well, actually, you know, we have a lot of depression in my family, and alcohol is a depressant drug, so I don't party. Right. It's interesting. Before uh, we started talking to you, Steve and I talked about this letter from former Hellraiser, and we were saying, look, you know, our approach is to, to tell our kids about our lives, you know, that we actually think it, it serves them to know that their parents are complex and, and we've made mistakes and we've come through it. In some ways, it's those lessons that, you know, we're all going to face that urge to take risks and to do things that aren't the wisest things to do. Well, what's what's your plan when your when your kids get older? Are you going to be? I was super restricted, huh. super super restricted. I wasn't one of those. Oh, let's buy them a keg and they can drink at home, mom. Yeah. yeah, I'm not that mom either. I'm restrictive too. Those people, the people who do that, I think, are often just don't have the kinds of 
propensity to drink a drug that that uh, you and I have. Well, well, I think, or or the opposite. There, I think they're addicts. A lot of those people, they're justifying their own behavior. Well, now, well, now, hold on a moment. If I may speak for the minority, uh, <laughs> I I remember getting stoned with my dad. I would say they were kind of upwardly mobile hippies, and that was part of the counterculture. It was when I was a teenager, and again, they were not addictive people, and they were moderate users, and that was always clear to us. But it did have the effect, and everybody has a different experience, but it did have the effect, I think, of not making drugs feel contraband. And I actually was never interested in doing much more than smoke and pot and never really had a taste for alcohol. But I did feel like somehow it wasn't off limits, and so it didn't have that shimmering aura of the, you know, forbidden. Right. I mean, the truth is, I think you're hardwired. The poet Paul Ceylon said, you know, about drinking, it's like a sunflower opens in your chest. You know, you, you <laughs> either fall in love the first time you get really wasted right, um, or you don't. So, you know, all due respect, Steve, I, 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 you know, my partner now, Michael, that he was one of those, oh, buy him a kick. Well, let me tell you, if it had been my kid, <laughs> he would have been the drunkest kid in school. Yeah. I think in my family, huh. I think it's like a firearm. It's genetic roulette. Yeah, this is the uh, this is the percentage chance that you have that you will be an alcoholic. Yeah. Now my hope is that that never happens. You know, blah 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 blah. But it's interesting that I think, I mean, I'm half Irish and half Native American, or three quarters Irish and a quarter Native American. Cultures like that that haven't had alcohol for very long have a very high percentage of alcoholics because we haven't been bred out. Yeah. Jews, Italians, you know, my Jewish fellow, him and his kids, yeah, they had kegs in the yard. But I, I think if you're not from an alcoholic family, it's easy to be glib about because it's not that dangerous maybe for you. It's You don't have that genetic component. So I don't know. I mean, I do know that I kept him off the stuff till he was about 17. Yeah, which is an accomplishment. But he made that decision of his own volition when faced with great temptation. Not only do you party, but some older pretty girl asking, do you want to party? He had it within himself. Somehow he had absorbed the idea of actually, no, that's not a good idea for me in particular. And you must have had something to do with that. And he has said now, I mean, he doesn't drink now. And he has said, um, you know, that the fact that my mother was sober and I was sober and he met so many sober people. And he also saw them you know, get drunk. And, and, you know, I did a lot of work at a halfway house in Boston. And, you know, there was a guy who was a lawyer who passed out in a snowbank and lost his hands and feet. You know, (laughs) you know, one minute you're okay. The next minute uh, you've lost your hands and feet. You know, I mean, uh, he saw that there were some real consequences, I think. Right. And so I, I think it's not that the, the key isn't just to shield them from the fact that, you know, people do things, including including sometimes their very own parents have right. done these things. But to, to in, in fact, do the opposite, like show them the whole picture, give them all that information. I do think absolutely it's amazing that, Deb, you know, like Steve said, it's this cute young girl is saying, do you party? So not only is the temptation, the the, the alcohol itself, but the girl and just this, the, the headiness of that situation. Yeah. And Mary, I think if I'll speak for us, you know, 
maybe you too, Steve. Like if when I was fourteen, if that had happened to me, I just the allure of that risky, oh, really? sexy. Right? I would have leapt right into those arms, you know, and and not so much for myself as a as a you know an alcoholic or a drug addict, but really just the the, the allure of that risk taking. And I do think that because you were so open about your life that, you know, Dev also, he understood it to be a cautionary tale about his own life. And that's, you know, you asked me what I'm going to do with my kids. I try to tell my kids as much truth as I can, you know, at the at the right age, that you know, in a sort of developmentally appropriate time. And, you know, right. they, they haven't seen the movie Wild, and, and I'm not going to let them because they're too young to see it, but they did see the trailer. And what was really fascinating to me, we watched it, you know, time and time and time again. And after about the 10th time, my son Carver turned to me and said, Mom, what's heroin? And I, that's what I did. (laughs) I said, uh, because there's a line in the trailer where a therapist says to Reese Witherspoon, who's playing me, you are using heroin. And um, I had to explain to my kids what heroin was and what I was doing using it and how that played out in my life. And it was really hard, but it was also what's so great about it is they understood, like they got it to the extent that they could. And I do think that it will in some ways guide them to know, to see that, that, that experience in humanity in this person. You know, so often when it comes to our mothers, we think of them in a very uh, sort of narrow box. And oh, yeah, of course, right? I'm a purveyor of waffles. That's right. And when right? we can expand that, I mean, one of my favorite, favorite passages in all of your writing is the, the uh, is it the prologue of lit or is it chapter one of lit where it's a, it's a letter to your son? Yeah, it's my, it's uh it's the prologue of lit is a letter to my son. That's right. Can you talk about that a little bit? Cause it's such a amazing passage. And I think that it speaks directly to this question because here you are about to launch in the book, you know, on this, essentially this story of your, of your reckless, you know, youth and your alcoholism and your recovery and all of this, but you, you write to Dev Will you tell us what that about that? Yeah, well, I, I had a sense that I wanted to establish what the stakes were. And the stakes were um, you hurt your children. Oh. I mean, you, you do. One hurts one's children. It doesn't matter who you are or how competent you are. And, and the first, you know, I was in a mental institution when he was three and a half years old. He had to come see me, you know, and go through security. I mean, God. Mm-hmm. Um and he remembers that. He thought it was part of Harvard. <laughs> but, <laughs> I love but, it. Uh, yeah, I published Cherry when Deb was 14. And one of the kids at his school said, he had said to me, I don't think I'm ready to read your books. My son had said that. Yeah, yeah. And then he came home and said, you know, so-and-so's brother said that you were like, you had a gangbang and blah, blah, blah. I was like, no. Here's what happens in the book. You know, I had a boyfriend, and I slept with him. We sort of make make out and sleep together, you know, in the car when I was a virgin. And, you know, and then, yeah, I moved and lived in a car with Uncle Dooney and all those guys who were selling drugs. And what I think is, you know, just like you, you didn't hand your books to Dev and say, no, time to get to know Mommy better. Um, <laughs> and, you right. know, I believe that our, you know, the children of writers will come to their work um, when they're ready to. And I think the same is true of people who aren't writers, like this letter writer, you know, the former Hellraiser. Um, her teenage sons might not in this moment fully understand why their mother did the things she did when she was a teenager. But as they grow and as they evolve and as they come into their own 
sense of self as they as they grow up. You know, they're going. I think that that we really uh, respect that kind of um, the humanity uh, in our parents when we know them right for who they are. And so I love that my kids will someday get to read about who I was before they came along. Well, I, I think it's also interesting what she says. Um, you know, this kid is obviously trying to justify doing what she did. And, and I remember saying to Deb when he was a kid, look, here's what, here's what the deal is when he was like 15 or 14. So you're going to want to drink and have sex and do drugs. I want you not to drink and have sex and do drugs. That's not negotiable. You're going to continue to want to do those things, and I will continue to try to prevent your doing them. <laughs> wow. So, so that's just the rule. That's just what we're engaged in. Let's not make it personal. Huh. You right. know? <laughs> like, let's, let's not make it like that I'm a bad person or you're a bad person. Let's just make it that this is what I'm doing and this is what you're doing. But did he come over the top and say, but mom... You did those things, and you turned out fine, because that's what former No, Hellraisers... actually, what he said was, you don't understand. You're crazy. You think because you had a problem that I'm going to have a problem like you, and huh. you think everybody's an alcohol. He said all this stuff. She said, it doesn't matter. Uh, I busted you with beer with your friends. Ergo, you no longer have a car. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the, it's just the rule. Like, I'm not. I, I think for me it was not getting angry about it, but just having a line. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It was like, I'm not yes. mad about this. It's nothing personal. I'm just... I think that's a really great way, great advice, and a really clear way to think about it. Because the other thing is, some you know, this, this uh, letter writer, she's like, it's as if she's back a teenager again. And, you know, you, as the mother, you were saying, I am your mother right now. And yes, I did all these things back in the day. And this is why I know you're going to want to do these things too. And my job is to support you in making better choices, you know? And I think to be very clear about, um, you know, your role in somebody else's life in that regard. Yeah, I did that stuff because nobody really gave a rat's ass what I was doing. That's right. Right? Right? They weren't watching. No one was paying attention. Yep. I got it. It was a lack of care. Uh huh. Um, Yeah. So I think that's wow. I want, yeah. Can you, you know, can you be, I'm sort of short a mom. Can you be my mom, Mary Carr? (laughs) I want to be your mom, Cheryl. If I could, if I could only be like as blonde as you and have those boobs. (laughs) Wow. If I could have bequeathed that hair and those boobs to you, it would be, it would be so nice. I know. You're not, I'm your mom. Just have the kids call me grandma. Yeah. You're, and we'll just we'll just start right now. Actually, yeah, enough. this works perfectly because you know you and I are kind of softies, and we want to like talk with our kids. And That's Mary right. would just be like, "It's nothing personal, Carver, Bobby. These are the rules." That's right. I'll stick a stake in the front yard. I'll put an ankle chain on you, and that's just the rules. It's how we do right. it. It's just well, business. The other thing I did was I. Nobody talks about the emotional torment of having sex when you're young. Oh right. yes. Right? Yeah. Nobody no. talks about the concept. Like when Deb broke up with his first girlfriend when he was in the ninth grade, I said, now think about it. What if you had slept with her and she went and talked to all her girlfriends at school about what you look like naked? Yeah. How right. would you feel? I still feel terrible about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was actually trying to figure out. So are you saying that before you have sex, you're supposed to get naked? 
<laughs> it strikes me as completely. I'm, I'm just trying out of to control. help you out. I'm right. trying to help you broaden. Maybe I need I'm some parenting too. I'll be your mommy well, too. I'll yeah. help you broaden your horizons. Thank you for letting us talk to you and call you. Yes, it means well, so much we'll, to us. We'll do this again. We'll soon, do it again. Clearly, you have a lot of. You, what I love about anyone with a life who's also written memoir yes. is that they're like they're they're totally like we can ask them anything and they won't flip out. So we're going to be calling you again, Mary Carr. Okay, I'm ready. Talk to y'all soon. All right, bye, hon. Take bye. care. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Last Scene, a new podcast from WBUR and the Boston Globe, investigates the largest unsolved art heist in history. So about the time that he begins putting the duct tape on, he says, this is a robbery. The theft of half a billion dollars worth of art from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. When the FBI says, we solved it, we know who did it, it's like, no, you don't, because you don't have the paintings. Subscribe and listen to Last Scene now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sponsored by Samuel Adams and ADT Smart Home. I'm just quietly traumatized by that entire conversation. I'm just having to reassess a lot of things. I love Mary Carr. I love Mary Carr, too. Don't you? What are you reassessing? Well, one of the things that she said that is profound that, that we really should try to, you know, integrate into our answer to former Hellraiser is that there is a difference depending on kind of how you and your family culture and even, you know, your genetic legacy inter- interacts with drugs and alcohol. Right. And for her, it was a very different matter. She laid down a real Old Testament line. But I think the thing that comes through is she was paying attention to her son. Mm-hmm. And her son was acutely aware of that. And even when they go into their exile and adolescence, I think kids are acutely aware of whether somebody is really paying attention. And so even if you take a softer approach of saying, I'm simply going to be here, I'm going to listen without judgment, or you take that sterner line and say, it's nothing personal, kid, but these are the rules. It's just business. In our family, you have to stay away from these things. That's my job. And there are going to be clear limits about that. In both cases, the message that's clearly coming across that former Hellraiser you need to hear is you need to be paying attention to your son. Whatever answer you come up with, and hopefully it's one that's as honest and unembarrassed as you can make it, but also accurate. Yes, I did these things and they caused me a great deal of pain and harm. And so naturally, I don't want you to feel that pain and harm. He needs to know that you're paying attention and not keeping secrets from him about who you were. That's right. Well said. I loved Mary's clarity. I think that clarity was born of so many complex things that she had to confront in herself, in her family. Mm-hmm. And I think that she brought all of that into her mothering with um, a clarity of purpose that her son wouldn't follow in their footsteps, that right. she would do everything she could to prevent that from happening. And I hope, former Hellraiser, you can take a bit of that wisdom with you on your parenting journey. 
We've come to the end of another Dear Sugar podcast. I have important things that I need to tell you. Dear Sugar is produced by WBUR in Boston. Our producer, our editor, is the wonderful Lisa Tobin. And thanks to Jim Brunberg, our engineer. We would love to hear from any or all of you who are brave enough to write. It's Dear Sugar Radio at gmail.com. Thanks.